Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grindin' shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And like always, we have the freshest of guests for you. And the guest for this episode is multi-certified sex and relationship educator, dream worker, sex toy expert, sex positive publicist, and founder of EDSE, which means Everyone Deserves Sex Ed, The Amazing, and Hotter Ship. And during our conversation, she shared with us her own experiences that led to her become a sex educator and publicist, her interest in sex education at a young age, gender identity, learning from other communities, the common issues that people and couples need help with in regards to relationship education, and her work as a sex positive publicist. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with Anne Hottership. Yeah, like, I definitely, you're somebody that I, I came across when I was, um, um, because of A.V. Flax's uh, book, uh, and, um, that Brian had sent over, and I mm-hmm. was like, uh, when I, the more I looked into your stuff, I was like, dude, I, this person's awesome, I want to talk to her, like, she's <laughs> so interesting about everything that she does, and there's, like, so much to, uh, sort of talk about, but, like, Everything that you're doing now in regards to being a, you know, a publicist and a educator in regards to sex and relationships, it just kind of came from your own sort of, you know, issues with yourself and where you were in life, you know, kind of talk about that. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I, so I do, I kind of have like two jobs. I do publicity for sexuality related companies, partly because 
I mean, I'm good at that. I, I ran, I started the company probably 10 years ago, but that is what helps um, sort of fund all of the sex education work that I do because it is, um, there's a lot of, you know, low or no cost service work that, you know, sex education does involve. Um, and so that's how I sort of make that work. Um, the, you know, being a publicist was a total accident. Um, I was a journalist and I focused on uh, sex, sexuality in the adult industry. And when um, it became clear that there was really no more, there's no more room to grow for yeah. me in that side of the, of the business, um, I just kind of broke away. Um, I left the magazine that I was <clears throat> an editor for and I just started letting different sex toy companies and um, adult industry companies know that I was sort of a free agent and I could help them with various, you know, writing and messaging stuff because I was a professional journalist and I didn't expect everybody to like jump at the chance, but they were all just like, Oh yes, let's do it. And so I sort of accidentally started this PR firm called hotter media. And we just happened to specialize in talking about sex and sexuality and porn and anything that is, you know, also cannabis and CBD most recently, the stuff that kind of um, is considered maybe taboo or stigmatized and maybe a traditional publicist who likes to, you know, promote beauty products or, um, I don't know, shoes wouldn't necessarily know right. how to handle it. Um, and then uh, in terms of like the sex ed and sexuality research stuff, I've just always been doing that even since I was a kid. There wasn't a lot of conversation going on about what sex is and how your body is supposed to work and, you know, all, all of the kind of like necessary stuff. Um, the conversations weren't happening, but I was very much aware that stuff was going on in my body. And I was very, I didn't even know, like I was, I was masturbating from a very young age, but like, I didn't know what it was. It wasn't like, Oh, I am going to masturbate now. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. you're a set, you're a seven year old and you're like, it feels good when I touch here. So like, I'm going to do it all the time. And so I spent a lot of time at the library. We did not have the internet. Um, that is how old I am. Um, believe it or not, it's so funny when I talk to young people, it's like the internet did not always exist, everybody. Oh yeah, right, yeah. So yeah, so I, um, I did like the sort of analog internet and I would go to the library and use the card catalog and there was a very small section of books about sex and I would just sort of casually, or at least I thought I was casual, um, walk over to that area and <laughs> pick out a book and just kind of read. And I, I didn't know, I wasn't like looking for stuff. You know, I wasn't like a 10 year old researcher, but I just, I just knew that I liked what I was reading and it was interesting. It <clears throat> in some ways, I mean, it was a turn on to read some of it. So for sure, some of it was just like self-serving, um, <laughs> but also some of it was just like it, it provided context and a different kind of conversation about what I was experiencing. And I was really lucky because I didn't have any other opinions or values or conversations happening to counter that. So on the one hand, it was very like lonely and certainly a young kid shouldn't have to like kind of parent themselves in that way. Right. But on the other hand, I didn't really, no one else really got in my way. And so I got really used to, um, taking control of my own situation, my own thoughts, answering my own questions, not even really knowing if there was any place else to go to ask for help. So I would just, you know, do that kind of classic, like, well, I'll just do it myself. And so um, 
by the time I was in college in journalism school, I was very much um, any type of sociology class that discussed gender and social norms uh, I took and um, almost to the point of having a sociology minor. And then um, they only had one human sexuality course in the entire college. And so, of course, I took that. And I just sort of figured, wouldn't it be cool if I could use my journalism degree in this way? Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see how that would actually happen. You're right. And um, then I graduated probably a year later. <clears throat> I moved to Los Angeles and was working at a horrible online magazine writing about like shoes and celebrity fashion bullshit. <laughs> and I realized I had to leave and I saw a job ad for a magazine that covered the business of adults. And, you know, like not the sexy stuff, but like, you know, new releases or what business deals were going on between studios. Yeah. And so I applied, got the job, and um, that sort of started the, the career side of working in sexuality. And it's kind of all just morphed into this um, very sort of accidental but very interesting combo deal where it's all about sex that I do, but it's either... On the one hand, it's working with people and teaching and, and coaching people. And then on the other hand, it's like trying to get magazines and media outlets to write about subjects or people or products in a way that is more informative and maybe a little bit less like hooking into stereotypes and, and yeah. stuff like that to try to, you know, get clicks. When you were growing That's up, the long and, of it. yeah. When you were growing, when you were growing up and sort of like <clears throat> learning this stuff by yourself, was there anybody that you'd share this knowledge with? No, it didn't even occur to me because I don't really know if I would have considered it knowledge. It was really just sort of stuff for me, you know. Um, and I don't even remember really anyone having conversations about sex or even puberty beyond, um, you know, the obligatory class that is really poorly structured right. and everyone's embarrassed. So no one's talking about it anyway. <laughs> um, I do remember getting messages pretty early on that it, if you do know something or if you do have a question or if you learn something, it's secretive and yeah. don't share it. <clears throat> so I do remember the puberty talk where they, they separate the guys and the girls as though there's only two categories of humans. <laughs> and, um, and like the, the boy side had a very different conversation than the girl side. And I didn't know what the boy side was, but I was certainly fucking curious. And <laughs> on my side, it was very much just like, you know, periods and basically, you know, good luck. <laughs> this sucks until right. you're 50. And here's what a giant diaper pad looks like. So, you know, best of luck. See ya. And I remember going back to class and telling one of the boys, well, here's what our side was. This is what we learned. And I thought it was interesting. And I, it was like there was something kind of titillating about sharing this, knowing that he, he <clears throat> like the only reason why he would know this is because I told him. Like there was clearly some interest and excitement about being an educator even back then. Yeah. Um, and I remember getting in big trouble as though talking about periods and menstruation and ovulation were like sexy, like dirty talk. And it's just sort of like, are you kidding me? And so I just, you know, those are the kind of messages 
that many of us get when we're really little. And it sets us up for teenagehood and adulthood where we feel very much like separate from other people and that no one will ever understand us and nor should they because this is a, these are secret things that only we deal with. And that's, that's why we're all having, you know, shitty relationships and bad sex. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the <laughs> amount of bad sex and relationship information <clears throat> I heard growing up and in, up until how recently is astounding. And I've had to do so much deprogramming in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and good for you. I don't think a lot of people realize that that's even an option, you know? Right. When you were... um. When you were younger, when you are uh, learning about all these things by yourself, do you think any of anything that you learned by yourself kind of helped you from going through some things that your typical like teenager would go through? It's possible. Um, <clears throat> I think that in some ways it, it's kind of hard to even remember what it was even really like back then. I have a lot of my memories are kind of hazy, but I think it helped me because I didn't have anyone else trying to impose belief systems on me. But at the same time, I was on my own creating very rigid belief systems for myself. Yeah. So in some ways the grass is always greener, you know, <laughs> and I wouldn't say it was better or worse, but um, I already was incredibly susceptible to other people's opinions of me. So I feel like if they, if I had also gotten opinions about my, my own sense of identity, that, that could have been extremely harmful. Um, but also at the same time, you know, there is something about, you know, being a young person taking care of yourself in that way is it, you, you grow up really fast yeah. and you kind of become an adult before you're supposed to be one. And um, especially, you know, and, and so my, my coping mechanisms, I suppose, were creating these rules and belief systems that were really strict because in some ways that gave me a sense of control. Yeah. And um, especially when you're a teenager, you have no control over anything. Your body is just all over the fucking place. You don't even <laughs> understand why because no one will tell you. Yeah. And you're just, you're just told, don't do this, don't do that because they said so. And it's just like, what? You know, how, how, what the fuck? So that's you know, a lot of my belief system stuff ended up being about like what counts as attractive or sexy and what counts as like, what do you have to do to earn or deserve someone else's attention or respect or love or attraction. And so definitely some scrambled messages there, but they all came from, they were the result of me reading stuff and then it going through teenage and filter and then <laughs> And then I would receive the info as how I, how I deciphered it. And without having an older person, like a trusted adult to kind of like help you navigate that, it, you might actually be totally scrambling yourself in a different way. And then, so then there's deprogramming about that, that ends up having to happen when you're older. Do you feel like having those sort of rigid beliefs that you filtered through all this information that you uh, were receiving did it did it isolate you at all from your peers you know how you know how did you react when you know your your typical like boy teenage boy was you know just trying to get laid and trying to holler at you well I appreciate the question because in all honesty um in some ways it felt isolating but I didn't feel sad about it because I wasn't really experiencing a lot of external 
attention, like, you know, using your words, I was not hollered at at all <laughs> when I was growing up. I okay. was very much, I thought I was cool and fun. I was very much, you know, aware of other people's, like I, I, I built social skills in order to, uh, I don't know, survive school because my physical appearance did not, assume, did not appear to be appealing to the people around me. And so I desperately wanted that kind of attention because it would have made me feel, you know, validated and all that shit, but I didn't get it. And so in order to feel worthy of other people's attention, um, I would, I learned how to like tell stories and be funny and in my brain, give them a reason to want me around because somehow me just as myself was, look, no way. Like, why would anyone want that? So yeah. those were some of those belief systems um, because my body, I was taller than everyone. I was bigger than everyone. Um, I had an incredibly vibrant sense of style, but I couldn't find clothes that would fit my body. This was before sizes at uh, women's clothing stores went above a 12, a size 12. This is before, you know, Torrid and Old Navy went up to, you know, 4XL. So yep. I genuinely, I had to either make and, you know, make some clothes and I didn't have a talent for that, or I would have to wear men's clothes and just find a way to wear cool shoes or play with makeup and hair, because that was something that didn't require a certain size. So as a result, like I, I very much stood out from the other girls in my school and, um, or at least the girls that I was aware of and, and thought were, the girls I saw getting that the kind of attention I wanted. Um, I was very much like a 180 from them. And so I didn't really have the challenge of trying to reconcile with how I felt with how I was being treated because people were basically treating me as uh, the weird, funny girl who had, you know, something to say. And not everyone wanted that around either. But um, that was, you know, that became like the identity. And I guess the consequence of all of that is then into, you know, college. And as I started shifting, um, not really my beliefs, but just my environment shifted and people, I, I, it wasn't such a restrictive, um, I don't know, like there were more people to meet, therefore more people to sort of like experiment with. Um, I, I really just kind of like, I don't know. I never really seemed to be super impacted by men's attention around me or I didn't feel the impact until much later, but I definitely um, would receive and accept treatment from men. Cause I, that's, I dated men. I was very much felt like super, super hetero until really only recently. Um, and I was very much taught that like men's attention is the thing <laughs> that you, you need. That's all you need. Yeah. Um, so I would really just like my, I mean, for lack of a better word, my standards were incredibly low. If anyone, anyone with a penis gave me attention, I'd be like, all right, let's see if I can like them back because this might be the last one, you know? Yeah. I was, I think I was kind of the same way with girls. Like I just, I was so shy and confused about so much things because I felt like, you know, I felt like I never st you know, stood in like your typical, whatever, you know, thing that your regular normal teenager or young adults 
because um you know recently i you know i finally like realized and came out that you know i want that i'm queer and that i'm you mm-hmm. know and that i'm gender non-binary i'm queer sexuality yeah. in the sense where i still very much prefer women but it mm-hmm. just doesn't stop there and then but i think i was more more so all these years looking for sexual or i mean gender identity and that's what i was looking for but there was no discussions about that until recently and mm-hmm. and that's when I was like, okay, I've been thinking, am I gay or not all these years? But what I was looking for was more gender identity because I have this strong feminine side that I really connect with. And I don't know what that Mm. is. So growing up, I was always in that gray area of everything, but there was no discussions about what it was. So all the, all that weird shit that guys you know, tell you about dating and sex. Uh-huh. It made no uh-huh. sense to me at all. And looking back was such horrible advice and I had to just sort of deprogram myself. Oh, wow. That sounds really overwhelming. It it was like, because it was just like, I was always frustrated about what I wanted, what I, why I wasn't feeling a certain way. And, uh-huh. and it's just like, but there was no discussion. Like, the only like discussions in regards to like sort of gender identity always had to do with like androgynous figures, you know, and they're usually right. they're rock stars like David like Bowie. David Bowie, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Like so <laughs> and if you were anything like that, you were a freak. And right. and but none of it ever got past that, you know, into just like, hey, I can look like a regular just Joe Schmo off the street, but I can have this gender identity like that I'm of this gender identity where I can sort of be more myself because I can embrace my masculine and my feminine side. But those discussions didn't happen until just recently. And it just clicked in my head. I'm like, Oh, this is what I've been looking for. And then all that Uh stuff sort of like um, answered other questions I was having in my life. It it Uh answered questions about my sexuality. It answered questions about, what I wanted to do in life and stuff like that. So there's all these quite like we were talking before, like in your, the sex education and stuff like that. When we're kids, that just is so awful that you're just like even more confused. Yep. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm just like, all right. Like thinking back what I know now in comparison to what I knew five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years Uh ago is so like crazy different, you know, and a lot of it too. And a lot of it too. Also, um, like I mentioned at the beginning was when I, um, when I quit drinking and little Mm -hmm. after, you know, probably about four or five months afterwards, I started to feel my body change back, I guess, to what it should be. And there was Uh a lot of those like feelings about, about, you know, attraction and sex drive and stuff like that that were kind of mm-hmm. numbed by alcohol that were mm-hmm. causing that were causing those questions also, you know, about my mm-hmm. sexual identity. So it's crazy about how many things in this in these subjects kind of are linked together that many people don't realize. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, I I I thank you for sharing all of that. It makes a lot of sense. I think that um Sobriety is a thing that can be really tricky for people when it comes to 
well, what does it mean about me and dating and my and sex then? You know, like who am I without the substance? Because for a lot of people, whether it was you know drugs, booze, or something else, like that was the thing that helped them, among other things, have sex with people. And some people, I, I do a lot of work with um, newly sober people, and they first off are confused why there's someone talking about sexuality in a rehab as though they can't, they, it's like they can't even connect the dots between, you know, recovery and making a huge life change like that. And also learning about who you are, like, who are you without that in your life? And, and then also they, it doesn't occur to them to connect the dots about, Oh, interesting. How did I use this thing in my relationships? How did I use this thing in my sexual expression, you know, did I depend on this in, in ways that I didn't even think about? Um, and it's like, and people, there's some people, you know, I've worked with who eventually realized that, oh shit, I used this every time I had sex. Like I did, it was just a normal thing. It was like, wash my hands, get the lube, take a pill do a line, whatever, and then go to town with this person. And then they're like, I don't know actually when the last time I had sober sex even was. And then they have this total flip and they think that sex without the substance is somehow going to be boring or unpleasurable or terrifying, or they're not even going to want to have sex because how do they want sex without having this extra, you know, oomph in their system. And then the ones that just kind of power through all of those very valid fears eventually come to a place that you did where they're like, Oh my God, that thing that I was depending on actually made sex horrible. (laughs) Like I don't even remember half of it. And it muted all of my sensations. Like it muted my fear. Great. That's what you wanted, but it also muted your fucking orgasm and it muted your actual receiving of pleasure because you can't numb, there's no pill that numbs one feeling, but then amps up the other, you know? Um, And so then like, you know, a year in, they're like, oh my God, it's a completely, yes, it's terrifying because it's it's new territory, but like the way sex happens for me is now, it's completely different. It's nothing I ever would have imagined. And, you know, I'm just so glad that I stuck with it. Yeah, right. It was like, when I was still drinking, like, I was like always like, how come I don't feel these things that all, like so many other dudes like are like feeling? You know, I'm not like mm-hmm. like horny all the time. I'm not like uh, I'm it's shit like that. And then once I stopped like mm-hmm. drinking, like months down the line, I was like, hey, I'm starting to feel those feelings that I'd never thought before. I'm like, dude, mm-hmm. I, alcohol must have like I already knew when I was drinking. That and and the funny thing is, this actually took a long time for me to connect the dots. Is that pretty much when I instantly started drinking, like I went to, I, I totally went to whiskey dick town, and mm-hmm. and that took a long time for me to to put the two and two together. But then I didn't realize how much more alcohol was was affecting it to where it was just mm-hmm. numbing all those sort of like sexual and attractive tendencies also you know so it was like it was like super crazy it was like super like overwhelming to like 
finally realized that and finally feel that I was like, Oh my goodness. I thought I would, I thought there was something weird, something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. Which then probably made you want to drink more because you're like, Oh fuck, this sucks. I'm broken or whatever. Let's right. Just right. Have another drink. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was definitely one of those people that started drinking socially cause I was, you know, part of a active music scene, but I was mm-hmm. super shy and I was in this shell and when I started drinking, I came out of that shell eventually. And, it, you know, it for a, for a little while, it, it helped me. But then, like like all things like that, there is a point when it, it starts going against you. Totally. And, and it's no longer helpful. And I definitely, you know, went through those years. So when I finally quit, I was like, holy crap, look at all these things that I never really felt any like felt before they like my body was super sensitive to all of this. And now I'm mm. like, I'm feeling these feelings and urges that I should have been feeling. Mm. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about that now? I feel great about it all. I, I feel it sucks that it took me so long, but I'm glad that I'm at a point to where I started feeling those feelings, but then, you know, once I quit drinking, like a year later, I started going to therapy and that helped mm-hmm. a lot. Then a year after oh, yeah, that, sure. I started taking medication and that helped even more. And mm. through, and that opened me up to a lot of ideas and stuff like that. And that's where I finally, you know, finally came to grips to where I find out, I, I found out my identity more is that mm-hmm. through all those steps of, you know, quit drinking therapy, medication, and it all, it all, and I'm at this point where, and I wrote this long essay on my, on my website about, you know, coming out as queer and what it, and explained Mm -hmm. it, but there was all these different parts and people actually like connected to different parts. I had a part about therapy and a part about community, you know, people that I've met and Mm. people about, and a part about sobriety and people had different had questions of me about all that different stuff. They didn't just hang on to the, like the, the queer thing. They, they, they were yeah. asking about the other things. So all those things, you know, finally led me to this thing of finding my identity. And when I finally, you know, just let it out to the world, like it was like this weight had lifted off my shoulders that I didn't know was there. And, uh. and I'm at this point where I can like, I'm like, interested in so many I'm like more confident and and it's 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 actually and I'm getting and I'm I'm getting past a lot of the goals that 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 we set in therapy and it's been Mm. really good oh that's amazing yeah and that's why I like talking with people like you because it's like there's another there's another part of um all of this that got me to this place is that I've, I've, you know, I've read books, I've listened to podcasts where, um, you know, with people who are sex educators, uh, various people, you know, from the LGBTQ community, um, mm-hmm. the, I've, uh, I've been a part of like the, this comic book creator community and there's a lot of queer folks in there that have their mm-hmm. own, have their own identity of what queer is, you know? And, yep. mm-hmm. and through all of that, that's how I, that's how I learned more. So what my identity was, was a lot of, it had to do with, you know, people in, in sex work, it had to be people mm-hmm. who are sex educators. 
it was like all these things where I learned hell I even learned things from you know listen to podcasts about motherhood you know and, mm. and, and all and all of that really reinforced that I have this feminine side that I really that I really like to embrace because and I realized mm-hmm. I'm like that's that that's where my answers came from is like yeah I connect more with like with like people like you who do what you do uh, rather than you know d- certain other types of people like you know certain men or whatever you know and that's uh, where I mm-hmm. found my identity is through all those different channels yeah that makes t- I mean it makes total sense I think that a, a lot of the the healing that we need will end up coming from community but very specifically like building one that works for you and what that ultimately means is like what you did you have to go outside of your current circle because clearly the current circle is not working you know or it's not enough and it's not nourishing you in some way and then go into the circles where you feel like an outsider like you the ones that you either feel like you don't belong or the ones that you feel curious about, or the ones that you feel judgy about, and you find ways to, to learn about those communities that still leaves you, you know, so you still feel safe doing it, yeah. but like, lets you hear about their experiences. That's how you start learning, oh shit, here's like 14 other perspectives on life that I've never heard before and never would have had I not done the work to reach out and learn and ask and receive, and I think, Podcasts are a fantastic way to dip into these different communities from the the safety and comfort of your house or your car or whatever, your headphones, and start the path because you start to like hear from people that you may not have even known you needed to hear from. And it's also fantastic to listen to podcasts about subject matter that seems like it would never apply to you, like you with the motherhood stuff. Yeah. It's, so valuable because I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not going to be a mom. Ugh, I'm not going to listen to that. That's dumb. But actually, those fucking podcasts are not just talking about being a mom. It's talking about all of the, the internal conflicts and the feelings and the, the feelings of fear or lack of safety or excitement and joy and the sticky, gross, you know, complicated, messy stuff that we don't get to hear about anywhere else. And it really helps you form a much more well-rounded perspective, not just on like the world at large, but also about your fellow person, which also means you feel more of a connection to your fellow person. And then you start realizing, oh, shit, I actually have a connection to that thing that this person just said. And I don't really know why, but it seems like I should explore that more. And that's when you can then start, you know, follow that person on social media, see if they have workshops and, um, you know, things you can watch and listen to or read online that they've done. And then you get to see, well, who follows them or who, who do they follow? And you start to like follow the breadcrumbs toward more people who are, who exist to help you, you know, part of their job is to like help their listeners and their their followers like learn and expand and benefit from the skills and stories that they're putting out there. Right. The moment that I like it clicked in my head that I was like gender queer, non-binary was that I was listening Mm -hmm. to a podcast. I was listening to, um, Alison Rosen's podcast and Mm -hmm. she had, um, 
this author, uh, Teresa Thorne, on there, who's co-host of the One Bad Mother's podcast. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about her journey about with uh, with her child, um, who was going through uh, who who's going through uh, her gender identity as a as a little mm. child, and how she's in the sub point of being um, uh, a trans girl in you mm-hmm. know, performative uh, you know trans, and um, everything she talked about in regards to to her experience dealing with it it like rang so clear in my head also and it just clicked and I'm like at work with my earbuds on and I'm like, holy shit. Like, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Like Uh. I wanted to like leave work and just go like tell everybody or do something. I was just like, I was just all of a sudden really antsy and I wanted to just go explore this feeling that I was having at that point. So yeah, it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's, there's all these things that in regards to gender and sexuality, and there's so many things that are interwoven that you never know where you're going to get that inspiration or that thing that unlocks your brain. It's so true. With, um, in regards to the stuff that you do in regard, in regards to, um, you know, sex and relationship education. Mm-hmm. What's, you know, what are the, what are the types of thing? What are the, the common things that people come, come to you with that, you know, you feel that you need to help that they, they're looking for help with? Well, it's kind of a, a variety of things because oftentimes what brings a client in is not what actually ends up being the thing they need support with. Right. Um, so like for instance, I had a couple come in and they wanted to explore non-monogamy in their long-term marriage. And so I was like, okay, great. Um, what's, what's your current, you know, what's the relationship like right now? And they started talking about it and it became very clear that one of the reasons why their current experimentation in non-monogamy was being such a disaster was because they didn't know how to communicate and they didn't have any boundaries with one another. And so it became less about let's find a framework for non-monogamy that works for you both. And it became more about let's figure out why it's so challenging for you to talk to each other about anything. And how do, how do boundaries, what's your current relationship to boundaries? Because the only way non-monogamy works is through really clear parameters and, and limits. And if one or the other doesn't set any, you are setting yourself up for potential harm. Um, and so then the sessions became about the, the dynamic in general and had nothing to do with, you know, relationships outside of the marriage um, I also have people who come in and they, they want support with dating and they, you know, can't understand why they can't find someone who works for them and they can't understand this or that or, and why is dating so awful. And so we talk about it and I validate it. Dating sucks in most of the time. Dating is challenging for most people, especially in cities like Los Angeles. I hear this a lot. I, I hear this about New York City as well. I'm sure it's everywhere. Right. You know, it's hard to date in general. Um, but especially in big cities where there is a, you know, a certain type of 
I don't know, like an energy and a, a perspective on um, human interaction where it's sort of like commodified and it's, you know, um, you see it as sort of like a, a task or a game more so than like a genuine, you know, attempt at human connection. Right. So, so we talk about that, but then we end up breaking down, oh, interesting, maybe the problem isn't just, oh, Los Angeles or New York sucks. It's, oh, you're, this is, a, after every first date, you never reply to their goodnight text. Or you wait for them to ask you out. You never reach out to someone that you like. Right. Okay, interesting. You know, the, here are some symptoms of your outcome and that can't really be blamed on anyone else but yourself. Yeah. Um, of course, blame, blame is a word I don't really like using. But, like, you know, you're responsible for that. Like, that's yeah. your contribution. There was all those rules about dating anyway. that we learned, like, through TV and stupid shit. Right. That, that we right. actually took, like, as gospel. Oh, of course, because we didn't know, like, where else are we going to go? Where else is the gospel, right? Like, nowhere. So uh, our parents and caregivers certainly were not, like, pros at telling us how relationships are supposed to look. And so <laughs> we're going to look elsewhere. And so ultimately we're going to, like, where, where is it a, a free and abundant resource? Like, the Internet or TV or movies. And we see a lot of really like curated fictionalized representation of how relationships and dating are supposed to look. And, but we, we don't necessarily have any reason to um, like question that, you know, there's nothing to counter that with. So we consciously or not receive that as our, as how it's supposed to be. And that becomes our expectation. And then if something is even slightly out of that expectation, a lot of us see that as red alert. Oh God, red flag get out of here, let's run. And we end up just staying in this pattern where it becomes really easy to just blame everything else, where what really ends up being more helpful is, well, what is my current, like, what's my education about relationships? Who was my teacher? Who were my first teachers? What did I learn? What do I believe to be true right now? And is there any space to consider the possibility that some of those truths might actually be complete bullshit? Right. And if so, all right, now our sessions are going to be less about how to write your dating profile in a compelling way and more about what is, what do I need to deprogram in myself in order to have better experiences with other people? Because the only thing we can control is how we interact in these situations. We can't do anything to control the other person's behavior. We can do our hair. We can learn 10 languages. We can read all the dating books about how to be performatively appealing or kind or chivalrous or whatever the word you want to use would be. That doesn't guarantee the person is going to look at you and say, oh my God, I love you. Let's have a second date. Like none of that. That's not how any of it works. So what you end up having to do is, all right, am I clear on what I want? How do I want to behave on my dates that make me feel good about me not about anything else yeah and what tools do i need to practice and prepare now so that when i'm rejected not if but when i'm rejected or when i have a shitty date or when someone is an asshole to me i know how to respond to that in a way that doesn't put myself in a bad situation or doesn't end up putting me back into old teenage patterns of self-loathing and that is the thing that really ends up making 
navigating sex, dating, and relationships um, a lot more doable because you are empowered to take control of what you can and then say fuck off to the rest. Yeah. Yeah, it's like um, when I was going when I was going through therapy, you know, dating was like a big issue. And one of the things that my therapist always said is that you just got to, you know, be cool with, you know, coming off like an idiot and know how to react to that if things don't work mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's great advice. We're all going to look like a total weirdo. We're all going <laughs> to be awkward. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to say the wrong thing. We're all going to fart when we don't want to be farting, like we're all going to be doing that. Yes. So instead of trying to avoid the inevitable, because it's literally impossible, let's just shift and try to focus on something that's more controllable. Like, what do I do if I say the wrong thing or that, or the person doesn't laugh at my joke? Like, how do I sit there and be okay with that? And maybe even laugh at that instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. One of the things, uh, one of the other things that, you know, when I started, you know, looking down your resume that really mm. sort of, you know, came out to me is we, and we talked about it a little bit is the sex positive PR. And, mm. and as someone like me who does a podcast and also is definitely more is I'm, I'm so sort of interested in getting more and more obsessed with like, just learning about sex, love relationships, uh, the inner workings of sex, of sex work of gender identity mm. and stuff like that. Um, what is, you know, and you, you said that like, you just kind of like fell into this sort of role, but like going, you know, those are still topics that are, you know, very much taboo to a lot of people. There's still a stigma attached to a lot of mm-hmm. things that are around sexuality and sex. You know, how do you go about Mm -hmm. spending these sort of topics to make them, you know, seem like a good fit for publications or websites or whatever? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, what I try to do is, you know, traditionally, you know, PR is all about finding the sort of clickbait type hook that will get someone's attention. And when it comes to sex, historically, that has always been, you know, hooking into someone's insecurity or fear or curiosity and say something or write something that will evoke an emotional response, even if it's outrage, all of it is good PR. Right. And so when me coming in, I'm very much the antithesis of that. Like it makes my skin crawl. Um, But I have to find a way to still get people's attention without perpetuating the same type of stereotype or the same, fear tactic that other publicists or other publications might, um, might use. And so usually that comes into um, thinking about like culturally, what is, what is being talked about at the moment? Well, you know, what's, what's being tweeted about what, what's happening? Who's, who said something, you know, specific or ridiculous on TV about their sex life? You know, what did Gwyneth Paltrow say again about vaginas, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then, find a way to sort of to connect my client or my client's product into that conversation without um, validating 
the bullshit in that conversation. Usually when there's some kind of contradiction, like this expert says so-and-so can go kick rocks because, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or so-and-so says um, the key to fantastic sex isn't shoving rocks up your, your pussy. And it's something like that. Right. And, and that's referring to, of course, the jade egg thing with Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. <laughs> explanatory comma for, for listeners, just in case. Um, and, and that is the thing that tends to get a little bit more traction without ha- me having to compromise my own values as a person. Um, there's something that, you know, my, my job can sometimes be a little bit more difficult because I choose because I'm also a sex educator, like I choose to maintain sex positive values with my work. Um, but also it tends to then attract clientele who also give a shit about that. Like they also care about shifting the conversation and not perpetuating myths and not banking on people's fear and insecurity in order to buy their product. And so um, it works out for me and it works out for them. And, um, and then also at the end of the day, like there is, there's so much sex toy related stuff out there. You know, a lot of my clients are sex toy manufacturers. There's, and also there's a ton of cannabis out there. Like the market is really, really saturated. And so there's also this acceptance where, you know, I might, even if I have like the perfect pitch or angle, it still might not guarantee that the editor is going to read it and listen because they've got 40 others to read. Yeah. And so at that, that point, it's maintaining um, the relationships with the writers. So they know that when they hear from me or they hear from like Brian Gross, my, you know, my friend who I think ultimately helped us connect um, yeah. when they hear from us, they know they're going to have quality content. They know that we're going to be giving it to them way before deadline. They know that the people we work with are on point. They have something to say. They've got good sound bites and that they can rely on us for a really good story. And that ends up being even more valuable than like the creative pitching. And I think part of the success with that is just we, you know, people like us, we stick to our values and what's important and we don't let anything else kind of shift us or, or waver us. And as a result, what we put out there is consistently good. And, you know, for media outlets who need to try to compete with one another, you want to try to have a, you know, a, a good quality message out there. And maybe that's the thing that stands out from their competition. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's what I kind of got from you is that, you're you're spreading something that you know these are stories these are products that are there's going to be some something genuine about them you know they're not going to mm-hmm. be you know any sort of there's not going to be any sort of negativity connected to it and that's what that's yeah. what that's what I really sort of like enjoyed about seeing your content seeing the people that you work with and everything and I'm like yo that's mm-hmm. kind of cool you know that's the type of that's the type of stuff that I'm looking for Mm-hmm. Well, great. I'm glad to hear it. That's, a, that's the goal. <laughs> so um, before we get out of here, I um, sometimes I like to uh, ask the my guests the same question. I did give it to you ahead of time to think about. Who is somebody that I could realistically interview for this uh, podcast that would have some good stories or lessons to talk about? I mean, gosh, there there are so many. Um especially in the sexuality world, there are so many of us who are good at 
you know, good sex educators, but also have specialties. Yeah. So for instance, there's an educator named L Chase who her whole, her whole story. And then the work she does now is very focused on understanding body image and what it really means and how body image impacts your own sense of self and sexuality as well as sensuality. And she really breaks all that down. And she has a really fantastic story about her own relationship to her body as well as her own sexuality and how the two of them have intersected. And um, she's actually teaching in Albuquerque um, this weekend, but uh, so much of her work is helping to deprogram people specifically about their relationship to their bodies. So definitely check out her. Oh, definitely. Sounds great. All right, it's been great talking with you, Anne. Uh, a lot of great information. Like I said, uh, when I first started kind of looking into what you did, I was like, wow, this is, she's doing a lot of great things. Plus, you're super funny on your uh, your Instagram with your cats. <laughs> and Thanks. Yep. <laughs> I was like, I was They're like, everywhere. <laughs> I was like, I definitely have to meet this person. It was like one of those people where I like to say, I totally have a friend crush on them and I have to meet them. <laughs> So where can people go online to get more information about everything that you're doing? Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, If you go to anhottership.com, and that's H-O-D-D-E-R-S-H-I-P-P, that's my private practice. You can learn about the different kinds of coaching that I offer. Um, And also, everyonedeservessexed.com is the educational organization that I run um, and that's where people sign up for um, for workshops and for groups um, as well as they have I have a sex educator certification there's a 25-hour training that we offer twice a year and so there's info on that um, on about that on there too hey yo thank you for listening to this episode of fresh is the word hosted and produced by myself Kelly K fresh Frazier empowered by anchor at anchor.fm slash fresh of the word Intro theme music by Foulmouth, Shimmy Bango, and Knox Money. Fresh of the Word is available on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Fresh of the Word, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh of the word. Follow Fresh of the Word on social media on Twitter at Fresh of the Pod, on Instagram at Fresh of the Word Podcast, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fresh of the word. For more information about Fresh is the Word and our other podcasts, Breaking Records and Renaissance Soul, and a collection of pop culture articles and reviews, please visit freshisthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the Word.